And we will continue in God's Word this morning. I know it's kind of weird, like, there's this email that went out about this transition, and then all of a sudden, the next week, you don't see Jerry, and you see this guy up here, and I'm not Jerry, and, you know, I know how questions come up, and it's not like there's rumors out there, but I am not Jerry, okay? And he's recovering from surgery, and I've heard doing well. So let's continue to pray for him. Let's continue to pray right now as we get into the Word. God, thank you for bringing us together at a particular time. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would just move in the room, of course, how you have already ordained this morning to go. So I pray that we would be receptive to your word. And I agree with that last song. God, I need you. Oh, how I need you now. So I pray that I would get out of the way and that your spirit would move and it would not be my words. Um, and that we would see what you have for us today in Luke 15. Amen. All right. So let's do this. How's everyone's New Year's resolutions going? That's my awkward question of the morning. It's interesting, actually, as I look at New Year's resolutions, right, we know there's actually a high failure rate, especially at the second Friday of the year, which just happened. So if you're still going, rock and roll. You're doing good. They actually label that as Quitters Friday. <laughs> it's a thing. It's like an actual thing. Quitters Friday, we just passed. So that's, we all know this, right? New Year's resolutions are only as good as, as we take them throughout the whole year. Same thing with Christmas. And uh, my family's actually in town, and we're celebrating Christmas this weekend. So I'm going to preach a Christmas service right now. And it's kind of funny to think about, I'm doing, you know, Christmas, New Year's, later we celebrate Easter, but all of these things are only relevant if we take them into the whole year. Okay? The, the title of this message is Emmanuel Always. God with us. And we usually think of the baby Jesus and we have Christmas time for Emmanuel. But God's story is to be with us from beginning to end. Emmanuel always. So this is a Christmas service. This is a Christmas message. And we're going to be in Luke 15 where the prodigal son is a story that Jesus tells us during his ministry. And it is quite the story of God with us. Okay, so that's where we're going to be. You can go ahead and go to Luke 15. I'm not going to quite read there yet, but this story that Jesus tells us is about a family. It's about a father and two sons. And we all have fathers. We all have mothers. And so whenever, this is the third parable that Jesus tells in Luke 15. And it just continues to get more and more intimate because Luke 15 is full of um, three parables, like I said. One of them is searching after a lost coin, right? But then it comes to this family story. And we know whenever there's family involved, it gets complex. And everyone in the room has a father and a father relationship. Or maybe you don't know your father. And so that we're just coming in all over the map. Everywhere from father in the home, mother in the home, we're just a great picture of God's goodness, 
like my upbringing was, just fantastic father. And then we have people in the room, they might not have even known their father. We have people that that father relationship was really broken and really dysfunctional. So we're all over the map with that, and I realize that, and we want to be sensitive to that. And Jesus speaks about the good father. Jesus speaks about who God is through fatherhood. But before we get too heavy on the father issues, right, let's talk about birth order. We have an older son and a younger son. And this is a parable that's very packed with gospel truth just by going through how does an older son and a younger son operate. So I looked into this, and there are certainly birth order stereotypes, yes? Oh, they did that because they're the older. And maybe you have siblings, or maybe you're an only child. So I started looking, and I'm gonna, just going to go through a couple publicly as my sister says right there. <laughs> I have an older sister. I'm the younger. So I started reading this article and kind of talking about older, younger, all these stereotypes. And it says the youngest is the most relaxed, easygoing, flexible. And I was like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Everyone that knows me well knows this is already false. <clears throat> I'm flexible, or I used to be anyway. And the oldest, it says, natural leader, driven. It's my sister for sure. She created an art program in a school that never had an art program. Natural leader, people follow. Doing well. And then it said the older has an average of a 3% higher IQ than the youngers. I was like, what? I don't believe this article anymore, of course. So in protest, as the relaxed younger child, I threw my laptop across the room. Um, I never said I was acting old for my age. You know, I'm not an only child, so don't judge me on that. But we do come to these stereotypes, and we see our tendencies. And we do have tendencies, right? Someone might lean towards being more uptight and more truth-driven in how they speak. Someone might lean towards being a better listener, being more relaxed, being more flexible. And each of these qualities is good in the right context. So let's talk about how Jesus talks about the older and the younger. Not that we're going to perfectly fit into either one of these, but he does delineate these two brothers as different. Before we get there... Let's think about where in Luke we are. Jesus is gathering a following, and he's starting to teach. He's not just, he's not just like traveling and doing miracles. Like he's got an order to his ministry. He's starting to teach and be more explicit about what he's bringing as the Messiah, right? And there's a, the first followers and the first folks that are attracted to what Jesus is saying are actually people that are really on the down and out in society, they're, dirt, they're considered dirty or unclean. They're really sinful, is a way to say it. Prostitutes and homeless people, right? People that we would maybe not even notice in society. And he's making such a following with this that now the religious leaders are gathering what he's saying, and they're, they're starting to pay attention. So Luke 15 is kind of right in the middle of the book, Jesus goes to the cross at the end of his life in Luke 23. So we're at Luke 15. We're not right at the beginning. He's starting to gather a following. And this, this story in the parable has three acts. We're going to go through all three. There's going to be a lot of scripture today. I'm going to read through each kind of paragraph. So a little bit more on the screen than we're, than we're used to. But let's just go through each act and see 
what God has for us with this father and these two sons. Now remember, there's everyone in the room. There's Pharisees and religious leaders now listening. And there's broken, dirty, unclean sinners also listening. So the first act is in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, two sons. The parable of the prodigal sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And we, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So this is normally what we think of when we think of the prodigal son. We think of someone that takes advantage of his father's wealth and blows it all and lives reckless. He lives his life at 100 miles an hour. He's dangerous. He's maybe looked down upon in society. Criminal, right? And that's a reality in our society. We have, we have socially unacceptable sins. And one of the things I want to take from this, I'm actually going to go kind of fast through Act 1 and 2. But the one thing I want to take from this is that he wanted his father's gifts. He couldn't just leave and do his own thing. He was at the mercy of getting that money. He still needed something from the father. He didn't want the father. He wanted his father's gifts. So once he got it, he's gone. This is the pattern of the younger son. You want something from the father, but you don't want the father. So he goes and lives recklessly. And the one thing I want to ask and the one thing I want to take from this is he detaches from the father, but then he attaches to something else. So when we detach from the father and the good design of this household that actually does produce, like this household is good. He's got a good reputation. He's got a good business going. They're viable to continue to live in a good, sustainable way. And the son detaches from that. But he has to attach to something else. See, what we really see that he wants is not just the money, because he squanders the money. He doesn't just want money. He wants to use the money for something else, for reckless living. We see the younger son's priority, his treasure, his God, is reckless living, to do it himself, to do it his own way, to define the rules, and essentially, if you go to the next slide, live above God. This is a life living above God. God, you've said, these are the rules. you said, this is the way of life. I don't want you. In fact, I'm going to define my own way of doing things, and I'm going to live above that. I'm going to come up and over God, and I'm going to judge his rules. This is life above God. And we do this all the time. This isn't just certain people. 
But we come to God sometimes and we say, hey, I don't know if I believe this part of the Bible. I don't know if I really want to go into what the Bible says about drunkenness. I mean, maybe all the other stuff, but like when it comes to being drunk only in the spirit, not in the wine, we can pick and choose and come to the Bible above it. That's living above God. So this is essentially not sustainable. The younger brother wants reckless living, but he runs out of money. So he's attached himself to something, runs out of money, and now he's in a different spot. Act two. Act two. What he was attaching himself to runs out. It's never enough. Act two starts in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here without hunger. I will raise, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This is his plan. This is what he wants to say. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm going to go home because I need something to eat. And to get that, I'm going to be your servant. I'm going to work for you. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this was my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to draw up his employment contract. They began to celebrate. Next slide. This is life with God. This is with God, not above God. And I want to draw something out from the son's original plan was to go back home. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. This is what I'm going to say. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The son's plan is to go from life above God and live on his own terms and his own authority. And his plan is not to actually go back and be with God and celebrate with his father and celebrate, right? The father in this picture is a picture of God. His plan is to go underneath God and say, I'm going to work for you. I'm going to earn by working. I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to be a worker. So you can accept me back in because I'm going to, I'm going to work for you. I'm going to be an employee. And that's also dangerous because that's, the not, that's not the nature of this father towards his son. It's not wrong to have employees. The father has other servants, right? But when it comes to his son, he doesn't expect him to work for his favor, work for his keep, work for his spot at the table. So we got to be careful about swinging the pendulum back the other way. And this, is com this can be common in the church. This can be common to live a life that's dirty 
and crazy sinful and come to God and see the depth of our sin and be saved, and then now I'm in the church, and I think I've got to keep that perfect church attendance or lead community groups or do this, that, the other to stay in God's favor, and it's not true. God rescues us and he runs to us. Speaking of running, verse 20, the father saw him a long way off. This implies that the father is not sitting at home, waiting for the son to just return on his own terms at the fireside with his back turned. He's like literally probably on the porch in earnest expectation that that father-son relationship might be mended one day. He's caring for the broken, lost son. Even if he's not with him yet, he's attentive to what he needs. He becomes undignified in the way that he runs towards him. So now we have running as like an activity and it's recreational and there's even like running races. It's like crazy. It's like what you, people used to run to like get away from like lions that want to kill them, get away from danger, you know. But now we, we think of running as normal. It was not normal for someone of this age that has two adult male sons to just run towards them. In fact, he had to like adjust his clothing. Like he's got sandals on, he's running through the dirt. This is like picture a 70 something year old running and they aren't dressed for running and they're in the wilderness and they're tripping and they're going towards their son that's blown all their money. This is, this is probably the most moving part for me of the parable is the father's response to seeing the son a long way off. He becomes undignified. This is a business owner that's used to being the boss and telling people what is in order and what's not in order. And he becomes undignified. He comes in, hugs, he kisses, he embraces. This is moving. This is, I mean, we can also apply ourselves, we can key off of this as fathers and mothers with our children. Right? The, the father here is a picture of God, right? But we can also key off of this to become undignified to what culture says fatherhood should be or motherhood should be. What I see here in a text that's thousands of years old is early and often, physical touch, embrace, kisses. Now you can pervert that all over the place, but the human need for connection at an early age is huge. I wanna challenge us, I wanna challenge the men. There's many aspects of fathering, for sure, and I fail at almost all of them. Physical touch, cuddles, kisses, early and often. It go, a little goes a long way, and I think a lot goes a really long way. That's one little application for us, but let's put that father back in the role of God here, okay? He wants to celebrate. This is God with us. 
This is God with us. Application. For God to want to celebrate with the sinner, it, at first it seems unjust. It, it seems like backwards, right? This is the posture of God. This is the posture of God. The son doesn't even get out the sentence that he wants to work for him. Do you understand that? Like, I had to read this a couple times. In verse 19, he's kind of practicing. I'm, gonna, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And then, like, it comes to the point where he's with his father, and he actually gets to speak. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then, like, I feel like the father might have, maybe I'm reading into this, the father kind of cuts him off. And then he orders the best robe. He doesn't even let him get to the part of working for him. This is not the way that this father wants this relationship to be as, as an employee. He doesn't even put it on the table for his sonship to be based on merit and based on works. So I have a, a, a quick little story about what it means to maybe be with that relationship rather than being above or below. My son and I went to a Packer game a couple weeks ago. Remember the Packers? <laughs> My son and I went to a Packer game, and uh, there's a lot that goes into it. You got to get the tickets. You got to drive. You got to make sure you have the right clothing. I mean, we went to the Monday night game against the Rams, and we were kind of the underdog. It was cold, 15 degrees. Awesome night to be at Lambeau, but we live in Eau Claire. Shoot, I should have had a map. We live in Eau Claire. We've got Green Bay over there. We got to drive Highway 29, right? And uh, essentially, there's planning that goes in. My son is thinking, I want to go to the game. I want to go to the game. I am playing a couple different roles. I got to buy the ticket. He can't afford it. I got to drive him. He's not safe to walk. Um, <laughs> but then, I mean, to be honest, he's 12, so he can't really drive. But if he were to play above, like if he were to treat our relationship like he's going to live above the rules, he'd want to drive 90 miles an hour. He wants to get there quick. He did not get to be in the driver's seat, right? I'm in the driver's seat. I know how to drive. I can drive through the snow. He cannot. He's not able to drive. The younger son would have said, give me the keys. Father, you are my ticket to this celebration called Packers Monday Night Football. And I'd like your car, I'd like your money, I'd actually like your driver's license so I can drive 100 miles an hour there. If by chance you actually got there as a 12-year-old driving 100 miles an hour, he'd say, okay, thanks and everything. Now, I'm, I'm at the party that I want to be at. Goodbye, Dad. I've used you for your stuff. I don't want you. What I want is the party. On my terms, I want the game. What's awesome about my experience with my son was like, we went together, I got to drive, we didn't go in the ditch, right? There's a good design about who gets to set the rules on the speed limit, about who knows the way to actually get to the party. And I had to buy, see the reason he actually got a ticket because it's a long story. His uncle got tickets and then someone backed out, so he got a ticket, so I'm like supposed to go there, but I don't have a ticket. So I bought a ticket on StubHub that's like a, a section over and a couple of rows back, so I'm actually not with them. And I'm just like, okay, this is cool. I'm making new friends. But then they're continually like looking back at me and telling me like, there's another seat we can squeeze. Like I actually went down and was with them, right? And it was killer because we were with each other at the party. 
It would be a totally different feeling if my 12-year-old said, thank you for driving me to Lambeau. I guess I know what that even entails as far as price and parking and whatnot. Now I'll see you at the end of the game. With is different than above and it's different than below. There also wasn't the case where he said, oh yeah, I'll do all my chores. And so then I'm your son and then I know you buy tickets for your son. There was absolutely no merit in us enjoying the game together. All right. <clears throat> We're doing good on time. We need to go to Act 3. And honestly, it would be easier for me to start to wind the sermon down and not go to Act 3 because some of you really like short sermons. And also, Act 3 is... Harder to ingest sometimes if you are an older brother like me. See, I'm a younger brother. I got an older sister. But somewhere along the line, I became more of an older brother. And it's hard for me to feel like I can teach this because I'm probably the chief older brother in the room. But Jesus speaks to a third act here in the story and it's important, it's especially important that churchgoers and people that have been around the faith community know about the older brother and can identify it in themselves when it is there. So let's read Act 3, verse 25. All right, they begin to celebrate. He was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now is found, and they began to celebrate. Verse 25. Now his older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to the older brother, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is act three. This is life below God. This is earning for your keep. This can creep into our lives in certain ways that we're not even aware of, especially our culture that's, that's we're really driven by our performance and what we do means what we are. Our culture has such a high priority on what we do and therefore what we do is who we are. And this father says no. What the younger brother did was disgusting 
And what he did was wrong. No one's denying that. But that's not who he is. I will now accept him, not based on what he did. And the older brother is sitting there the whole time near to the father, and he expects to be accepted because of what he did. And so this is paradigm shifting in the religious leader's system. He's now speaking to the other people in the back of the room, the people that are taking notice of Jesus' claims, that have a God of the law. The law is good. The rules are good. But they value the law and the rules and the system above what Jesus is actually bringing, which is sonship. They'd rather not be a true son to be with the father and have their law than to actually go about it Jesus' way. And Jesus is speaking in in ways that does not fit the system of that day or our systems today. This is life below God. First thing that I'm super convicted of, verse 28. Because it's not bad to say what you did. Like sometimes my wife and I have to have discussions about like who did what. Right? Like we need to, like who who fed the dog? (laughs) Who did this in the business? Who did this at home? Like we need to have discussion and like know about what's going on. Like it's not wrong to say what you did. Here's an indicator that we're close to an idol and that we're attaching something we did with more than just what we did. Verse 28, he hears of his younger brother coming in, but he was angry and refused to go in. Wherever there's anger, now there is a category of righteous anger and Jesus got angry. But typically, for us especially, whenever there's anger, there might be an idol nearby, just somewhere lurking that you didn't know maybe was even there. This whole story sounds extremely unfair, by the way, in our system of merit. He was angry and refused to go in. So what is this, what is this idol that the, that the older brother has? I think, I think we'll get there soon. But his father came out and entreated him. This is the word that stuck out to me. I've, I've read this many times. I've studied it. I grew up in the church. I know about the prodigal sons. I keep harping on that, that title, by the way, because I know the, the headers of our Bibles probably say prodigal son, but we're starting to see the older son as a prodigal as well because he doesn't want the father. He wants his father's things, and he doesn't want the father. These are two prodigal sons. But his father entreated him. This word stuck out to me, and I haven't noticed it before. What does entreated mean? This same Greek word shows up in Philemon. Not that there's a big parallel here in the passages, but listen to this. In Paul's plea in Philemon, he's writing a letter. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you, Paul is bold enough in Christ to command these people maybe what to do for what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, to appeal. This is the same word, actually, as as in the Greek, is appeal or entreat or come out and discover what's going on. Let's be reasonable. It's not just a command. Why? Why? 
Why did not the father come out and command him to get in the house and start the celebration and put on your happy face and act like you love each other? Right? Why didn't he command him? Because the older brother's all about commands. That's his God, to be faithful to commandments. He could have commanded him, and then the older brother probably would have no heart change whatsoever, probably would have no celebration whatsoever for someone that's lost and is found, but he would have buttoned up, put away his anger possibly on the outside, and got in there and followed the rule of his father to take part in the fun party. He doesn't command him. He entreats him. He appeals to him. He's probably on the porch, not going in the house. He entreats him. And it doesn't really say anything about what the father says. He just says he entreated him. This is different. He makes an appeal. Well, here comes the, the older son. But he answered his father, look, here we go. Here's my performance. Here's my performance. Here's my performance. Here's my performance. Here's my resume. Let's go. Deep breath. Look, all these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command. I've never given you, you've never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. There it is. He wants a party so he can be with a goat, with his friends. He wants the same party. He wants the same stuff his father's giving out to his son, except the, son, the younger son's party is with the father. He's come back, and the father's throwing it to be with him. The older also wants a party with his friends. He doesn't want the father. These are two prodigal sons. I want your stuff, and the way I'll get your stuff is either socially unacceptable, just asking for it and blowing it, or I want your stuff, and the way I'm going to get your stuff is to act nice and proper and be socially acceptable in my sinning, which is to continue to reject you, Father. That's sin. That's what sin is, is to reject the actual being of God. And you still might take his good stuff. This is hard because it's, it's, more, it's more, it's easier just to say, Look what they did. Here's a list of bad behaviors. Look what they did. Here's a list of good behaviors. Bad person, good person. That's how all of our movies feel. Here's the bad guys and the good guys based on what they do. The other thing, verse 30, comparison. Man, we don't compare at all in our culture. Verse 30. Not only this is what I've done, Father, here's my resume. Verse 30. But when this son of yours... He didn't say, but my brother, my younger brother, he detaches from his brother as like his brother, and he goes, yeah, this son of yours, God, this other son of yours who has, devoted, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So he brings up the other person's sin. There's performance and there's comparison. It's like, God, if I did this for you, you owe me this. And then in, in the words of comparison, well, I've never done this. I can't believe my brother, or as I would say, your younger son did this. Performance and comparison. Performance and comparison. Performance and comparison. We are riddled with performance and comparison. 
and I'm probably the worst one here. This is the current of our culture. This is how I lean and bend when I judge others. Unrightfully, performance and comparison. I can't believe they would do that. This is my main struggle. Even in my marriage, by God's grace, we haven't come across the unfaithful adultery struggles that some other people have. But my goodness, when we start to compare what we've done and what they've done and what I haven't done and what she hasn't done, it is damaging to keep a track record and a scorecard in faithful, good relationships. Marriages, relationships, everywhere. We are not to relate to one another at the basis, at the... At the bottom of our relationships, we are not to relate to one another based on merit or comparison. And sometimes I feel like that's all social media is, if I could just point that out. It just seems so normal. That's what we do. We can compare, and maybe everyone posting, and I, I post. It's not explicitly, but we can take it there, right? We can only share this part of it because we don't want to, here's the half of my life, but then actually, not just the people posting, people reading it. We can improperly read and be engulfed in our culture to then compare when it wasn't meant to compare. It's just a post about someone's kids. It's just a post about a vacation. That's fine. I do that. You can do that. But we can take it improperly and start to compare. Maybe I'm the only one. There's also a societal, like there's a cultural reality about living above God and living below God. And so living with God and knowing that he saved us, not based on what we did, there's a shift in our American cultural Christianity, it seems like. And I haven't been around forever, but it feels like, this is an observation, this is not Bible, this is Adam Condit. I'll make one observation about why people are leaving the church like crazy and why there's disheartening Waves of people deconstructing faith and deconstructing and thinking through and examining faith is a very good thing. So I don't want this to be filled with a buzzword that people associate something to that's not really there. But when it comes to leaving the church and feeling like you can go about it without a church body or without Jesus or without what the words of Jesus actually say, maybe, just maybe, there used to be political capital, excuse me, there used to be social capital in living below God. Maybe, just maybe, our cultural American way of church used to be more of a posture that's super socially acceptable and we live below God and we earn it. And now that there's political... Jeez, I keep saying political. Now that there might be social capital to live above God and do things your own way and be the authority and not come under God's word, maybe that's why there's just this shift. If all along, folks that call themselves Christians for the last 200 years were with God, with God, not living below maybe we would not have this seismic wave. But I, I don't know. I don't know. That's just an observation. All I know is in Jesus' time, before America got here, 
in Jesus' time, they had huge problems with people putting their identity in following the rules. And there was huge social and political capital in doing what's right. So we, know, we, need, to take, we need to take something here that says behaving correctly isn't all that there is. And in fact, we can be completely blind to our idol. There's a certain blindness that comes with being the older brother that being the younger brother doesn't have. When you're the younger brother, everyone, including yourself, knows you're sinning. You're eating with the pigs. You're dirty. You're not proud of what you're doing. And when you're the older brother and it really takes root, you're really proud of what you're doing. It's the same but different. All of humanity is in this story. All of us. And I'm not saying, you know, only certain people, you know, like I fit perfectly into older brother and I never struggle with younger brother. Of course I do younger brother things. And I'm not saying for those of you out there, you might identify and lean more towards it's easier for you to sin in a way that's more like the younger brother and just be your own authority and go, go off and do whatever. I'm not saying you don't have any older, we just need to recognize when is my younger brotherness coming out? When is my older brotherness coming out? And how is that actually undermining what God has for us, which is to be with God? All of humanity is in this story. And all of humanity is also in Luke 23. And this is where we're going to end up. See, Jesus is able to kind of change his, not change his ministry, but there's kind of a turning point where he's not just healing. He's not just displaying. He's not just demonstrating that he's the Messiah. He's actually speaking bluntly to the Pharisees to the religious higher-ups, and he's starting to make these distinctions. And I believe all of humanity is also displayed on a cross. Not on the cross, on a cross. There's three crosses. When Jesus goes to the cross, he's in the middle. He's got a thief on one side and a thief on the other. And all of humanity is in this. And I'm going to get try to go through here without... This is so moving for me to see the thief on the cross. You don't have to turn there, but this is what Luke 23 says, eight chapters later after prodigal sons. One of the criminals who were hanging railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Are you not? We got criminals. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Be God... So you can do your God thing, so you can save yourself, yeah, but save us. I actually don't want you, Jesus. I want to be off this cross. Criminal one. Criminal number two. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since we are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly... For we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. We're getting what we deserve, is what he's saying. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And, Jesus, and he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The second thief wanted Jesus The first thief wanted his power so he could get off of his cross. 
The second one said, I actually deserve this, but Jesus, remember me. I want to be with you in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me. This is the story of the prodigal son, to not live above God, to not live below God, but to want to be with God. These are the thieves on the cross. And I've got way too many notes here, and I could say so much more. Jesus is with us in our suffering. He's with us. Those three crosses are different. Jesus is paying down a debt that's not his. His cross is different. He, he lived a sinless life. He didn't deserve the cross. But he took it. He took our sin. Those other two did deserve their cross in a sense. They were criminals, just like us. We're all criminals. We're all wrong. Even if your criminal activity looks socially acceptable, like mine. The gospel is right here, verse 41. We need to see us and Jesus for who we are. That's what the second thief did. We indeed were unjust and we're receiving the due reward, but this man has done nothing wrong. That's part of the gospel, to see yourself for who you are and to see God for who he is. Verse 42, we want to be with God and he asks for him to be remembered. He wants to be with Jesus. This is the full gospel story, and this is why the Christmas story is the gospel. God with us. It's not just about a baby in a manger. God with us, Emmanuel, always. This is the gospel story. God is with us in the garden. He's with us. There's good relationship that's helpful. There's a father that has creation, and it's perfect, and it's good, and he's with us, and we sin, and we're separated. And then he's with us at Christmas. He comes to us. He initiates. He doesn't stay apart from us. He doesn't say, get your act together. Here's the law of Moses. Do the best you can, and I'll see who can be with me. He comes down to us. We're dead. We're not able. He comes down to us. He's with us at Christmas. Then he goes to the cross, and he's with us in our suffering. And then he leaves us again and he pays our penalty and he goes down to the depths of hell and he does what we should be doing, which is separation once again. And he conquers death and now God will be with us fully and finally in his second coming. This is, the, this is why Christmas is so moving because we do expect him to come back. There's a second coming. There's a first coming. God is with us, Emmanuel, and now we expect him to come fully and perfectly for our redemption. So I just invite you, all you younger brother types, all you older brother types, whichever way you lean naturally when you're left up to your own devices, I plead and I pray, and I don't have the power to do it, I pray the spirit would move where you would want to be with God not in your next 20 years, 60 years, 100 years, forever. The criminal on the cross saw this. He knew it was the end. And when you see criminals on the cross in that story, what do you think and what do you wonder? When you see that, it's, down, it's, it's time. The most important part of their whole life is about to happen. This is it. Are you wondering and are you seeing them and going, I mean, I wonder what denomination that guy was on. 
Was he like a good Lutheran? Was he Catholic? Was he, was he Anglican? Was he non-denom? What did he think about baptism? These things are important. But he wanted to be with Jesus. That's where we start. I wonder if he voted red or blue. I mean, I just need a little bit more information before I have sympathy for the criminal on the cross. I wonder what kind of sexual tensions that guy had in his life. I wonder how many partners he had. I wonder what his crime was. Like, was he, was he like stealing things in a, I don't know, a January 6th, like insurrection kind of way? Or was it more of like a rioting kind of way? Was, like what, give me more context to his crimes. Let's just assume he's the worst of the worst. And Jesus is entreating and showing him in the most tangible way, this is who I am. I am on the cross. This is Jesus at his best on the cross, dying for sinners that don't believe it. Dying for sinners that don't deserve it. And when you see Jesus for who he is, by the power of the Spirit, the eyes may be opened. By the power of the Spirit, the dead will be alive. By the power of the Spirit, the ears will be able to hear the good news. Is this beautiful to you? Or is it about the rules? We're going to close. I've gone too long. And we'll sing another song. God, thank you for being with us. I pray that we would see you for who you are. I pray that we would see ourselves for who we are, which is criminal without your grace. God, give us grace. Give us your spirit. Thank you for this time. I pray that only your spirit and only your word would move, that my words and my many, many words would fall flat if they're not of you. Amen.